Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's the Wonky Show. This week we are checking our privilege, then we're going to chat politicians and their prorogations, students and their initiations, and midwives and their situations. Plus we have a Yes But Does It Correlate and Hidden Histories. It is all coming up. I mean, the, the rather odd thing about the time story was that kind of, you, you know, the reason they say it's not going to happen is because um, the government doesn't have a majority in Parliament and couldn't get anything through. Well, funnily enough, that's going to, that applies to absolutely everything <laughs> on their agenda. So, um, you know, why they're using that excuse to... Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into higher education, policy, people and politics. I'm Rachel Firth and returning back to the podcast after an illegal prorogation, we have, as always, three wonderful guests. In London, we have Lead for External Engagement and Strategic Development at Goldsmiths, University of London, Selena Bolingbrook. Selena, give us your highlight of the week, please. Hello, Rachel. Um, uh, I had a very, very big highlight at the weekend because I visited a teapot museum, oh. uh, over 8,000 teapots. <laughs> So that really did set the bar for the week. Um, But my work-related highlight was I'm a governor of a secondary school that is due an Ofsted visit this year. Uh, And we had our mock inspection on Tuesday. Uh, So uh, that all seemed to go certainly better than my own mocks had ever gone. Uh, So that's left me on a bit of a high. Um, In Manchester, we have Professor of Government Practice at the University of Manchester, Andy Westwood. Andy, what was your highlight of the week, please? Well, um, it's got to be hearing the word justiciable which obviously I had to immediately Google uh, to understand what it meant, but it was in the words of Lady Hale of the Supreme Court that uh, the decision to prorogue Parliament was a justiciable matter. And uh, I have to say, uh, Lady Hale, former Professor of Law here at the University of Manchester, a Cambridge graduate, but as the Daily Mail describes her, ex-barmaid. <laughs> and if someone doesn't put that on a t-shirt this week, I'll be amazed. Because <laughs> I would absolutely buy it. In many ways, we're all former barmaids, aren't we? Absolutely. Um, and finally, in Wonky HQ, we have Wonky's editor, Debbie McVitie. Debbie, share your highlight of the week, please. Oh, I, I should offer a correction. It's Wonky, uh, wonky editor and former barmaid, Debbie McVitie. <laughs> uh, and my highlight of the week, I think, uh, was, was just last night, uh, in which uh, we hosted a dinner uh, with our partners, Isla. Uh, we were talking about uh, how universities are thinking about digital strategy. And um, it was... The thing that was uh, the thing that struck me about it, I think, was about the gap between uh, universities' appetite to innovate um, and, and the ways that they're thinking about how they can, d- uh, you know, design courses that are uh, more accessible, more flexible, um, and meet the needs of, of lifelong learners and so on. Um, and how much of that doesn't necessarily get represented, I think, in the mainstream policy debate. Hmm. Well, excellent. Thank you for joining us so early after what I'm sure was a long night at dinner. Yes, I can only um, apologise for my, <laughs> my contributions this morning. Uh, right, here we go. Uh, we start this week with a number of interventions around equality, disadvantage and privilege in higher education. The Office for Students has released a new experimental area-based measure of participation, rates of young people in higher education. It gave us our new favourite HE acronym, TUNDRA, which is tracking underrepresentation by area. 
We've also had Advance HE, which has published an annual report giving staff and student equality data, which includes age, disability, gender and ethnicity. However, there's a disparity in what information is collected and from whom um, at some institutions. We've heard the phrase education equality several times at the Labour Party conference. So if we take all this together, uh, there's a conversation to be had about recognising and addressing more complex forms of disadvantage. So Debbie, would you be so kind as to start us off with this one, please? Yeah, um, and I'm going to try and try and draw a line between uh, experimental equality data and participation data and uh, and the Labour Party conference uh, views on private schools. So, uh, so sort of strap in and bear with me on this one as I try and draw that line. But um, it has been quite an equality equality focused week in various ways. And um, this uh, Tundra, which is the, an, an experimental area based measure of uh, participation in higher education, young participation, I should clarify. Um, which uh, in some ways is very similar to Polar, which is our existing area-based measure, but it, it does things with linked data um, around uh, tracking progression from uh, students uh, in, in mainstream schools at the age of 16. And if you want to know the kind of specifics and detail of that, we've got a brilliant blog on the site by David Kernaghan. Um, and it's and it's trying to kind of think about how, uh, you know, whether, whether, there's, whether there's better ways to understand uh, pr- progression into higher education, which of course will help institutions uh, understand how they're doing in terms of their uh, mission to widen participation. So there's that. Uh, we had uh, the annual Advanced HE Equality Report, and these reports come out every year, and they say, you know, who's um, who's what the kind of makeup of, of higher education looks like, uh, both in terms of students and staff, um, and that covers of age, gender, ethnicity, disability as standard. Um, but it also looks at intersectional data, and by intersectional, of course, we mean um, people who may have uh, multiple protected characteristics. They may be female and black, they may be uh, disabled uh, and and female, and, and so on. And it's trying to understand uh, what the kind of consequences of that might be. So you can kind of you can select out things like you know uh, uh, black female senior managers, for example, and that helps to understand how different um, measures of disadvantage or, or exclusion may be kind of uh, being compounded by by people having more than one protective characteristic. Um, and 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 I think that's interesting. And there's there's stuff in there about um, about what uh, what institutions are collecting, what information uh, on a voluntary basis. So there's, there's a number of uh, information about protected characteristics that can be submitted on a voluntary basis to HESA, and they include things like sexuality, faith and belief, um, and gender reassignment status. And about uh, I thought it was interesting that about 50% of institutions seem to collect uh, those sorts of things, uh, sorts of information about their staff, but 75% and, and, and above for students. So there, I wouldn't draw conclusions from that, but there does seem to be a uh, perhaps more appetite to collect that information from students, perhaps because um, of some of the kind of measures that pe- uh, people are looking at around things like harassment and, and um, sort of student safety and um, and sort of yeah, thriving campuses and that that sort of thing. Um, and now the kind of link to what, what I think this does is, is it paints. Uh, I think it's quite a challenging picture for institutions. It's re- it's really good to have rich data, and it's really good to understand how uh, different diff- different. Inequality kind of presents itself in different ways and it has different sorts of consequences and to use the data to understand that as, as best you can. Um, and I think what, but it, but it can be quite complex, I think, particularly when you're talking about very small parts of the population. So for example, uh, the trans community, you know, as, as we understand it currently, and I think our understanding is, is always evolving, is quite a small community. It's hard to draw conclusions, um, about, about those experiences without really kind of getting into the detail of lived experiences and it, it's a complex picture. I think set that against, uh, quite a, um, a sort of one-dimensional way of looking at privilege, which is about uh, uh, the Labour Party uh, endorsing a proposal to limit entrance to higher education to 7% uh, uh, from private schools, which is the kind of equivalent to the uh, proportion of the population that are privately educated, and sort of saying we, we would put a quota on that, um, suggests quite a sort of unsophisticated view of, of, of how inequality works. Um, and it seems that while the 
sector is sort of is, is going off in one way in terms of thinking about privilege and about kind of complexities of privilege and inequality. Um, the Labour Party conference is going in a rather different direction. Mm. Selena, very kind of a, a complex um, uh, issue. Is it about time we kind of start looking at these things differently? Is there anything that that came out this week that kind of took your took your eye? Um, no. And, and I think that's disappointing because I think whenever we get a new data release or indeed in this case a new metric or, or set of metrics, uh, which is what Tundra provides us with, I think we have to ask ourselves, so what do we know now that we didn't know before? And I think in terms of the pattern of inequality, these are entrenched. Um, they really haven't changed very much over the last sort of 20 odd years. And I think what is now key for the sector is to have a real focus on action, reflection and the evidence around what works and what doesn't. Um, to me, I think at both a systemic sectoral level, but more importantly, at an institutional level, that is where our attention and our focus needs to be. Um, certainly, uh, working in you know the, the, the school sector as a school governor, um, having worked in the FE sector as a college governor, and then working as a staff member within universities, the issues start early and they continue through. Um, and I think that it is by all parts of the, the education sector being able to work together on action plans. I think that's where we're really going to have to see a difference made. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I, I, I like the acronym. I think Tundra, <laughs> I think Tundra's great. It proves that, uh, data geeks have a, have a, both a sense of humor and a sense of, uh, policy history. Uh, <laughs> because I, I, I loved the sort of line it drew back to, you, you know, when we started talking about places as, uh, as cold spots, which, um, you know, happened during the last Labour government. Uh, and, uh, and obviously the kind of link to polar. So, so I love that. Uh, and, and, and I kind of love the sort of quest for data, uh, and for the improved sort of basis for both institutional and national thinking. However, however, <laughs> um, it, I think, I think sometimes the quest for data kind of just belies a, a narrowness in thinking, which, which I think kind of plays to what Selena has just said. Um, sometimes, you know, we, we miss, miss the wood for the trees. And, and, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that we know are problematic and we don't need another, uh, data set to tell us that. We just need, uh, uh, the will, uh, uh and kind of, uh, uh, an institutional acceptance that, that more needs to be done in certain places. Now, where those places are, where those sectors of the community are, where the kind of intersections of kind of different disadvantage come in, um, you know, are, are, are matters for really serious kind of thought. But, um, uh, the data isn't going to solve that for us. The data is just going to help us build a picture and uh, it comes back to institutional and national policymakers to decide what matters most. Right. Now let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, my name is Caroline Mackay and I'm a licensing manager at Just Collections. My article is entitled Transitioning Textbooks to Open. Lesson and insight. In the UK, many HE institutions are committing to purchase e-textbooks on behalf of their students on a one-to-one -one basis, but this is an expensive recurring cost. Following on from JISC's Institution as an e-textbook publisher project, in this article we share three lessons on publishing open and affordable e-textbooks from Professor Frank Rennie and Professor Keith Smith of the University of the Highlands and Islands. At JISC we feel that the time is right to capitalise on the growing new university press movement to start having serious sector-wide discussions and action towards the creation of UK-wide open and affordable textbooks. Let's start having these discussions now. Hi, my name is Alex Lee and I work for the Lee Partnership and we're all about supporting better outcomes 
with data for the higher education sector. And the article I wrote for Wonky is trying to establish what the value of data is and how do you quantify that when you consider it against the cost. I've taken the HESA student data set as an example and talked about the positives and benefits of trying to make that fit multiple uses. I've talked about the importance of a fitness for purpose and understanding that some data is more important than others. And it's really important that you uh, make sure that you treat that data differently and you spend your data budget uh, in a way that uh, aligns that to your university objectives rather than just passively fixing data quality issues. I think the most important thing in the article is to understand that if you don't do that, all that will happen is more of the same. And the, the sector is changing to the point where we have to think differently about our data and we have to manage it differently. Thanks very much. And don't forget, we'd love to have your contribution on the site. If you'd like to pitch us a piece, just drop us an email on team at wonky.com with your idea and we'll be in touch. It will not have escaped your notice that UK politics is in chaos at the moment. We've had two party conferences, one party conference which at the time of recording might not happen. We've had a we've had a prorogue of parliament, a Supreme Court ruling and a return of parliament. And you are a professor of government practice, so it'd be great to get your take on on uh, on all of this in the context of policy making and specifically what it might mean for HE. Sure. Well, um, I mean, the first thing to say is, I guess that there's there's not a lot of policy making going on because there's not a lot of governing going on, and that's uh, you know that's a, a consequence and a feature of the um, of the quite depressing kind of political uh, uh, environment and the and the very depressing political discourse of the moment. I mean, it gets worse and worse and worse, and um, you know, but being a kind of politics geek uh, uh an obsessive and a kind of you know former worker in this world i've been to more party conferences than i sort of care to remember and uh this week i've been at the labor party conference about a couple of days in brighton and um it's it's kind of an interesting time and i'll be i'll be at the conservative party conference if it happens uh next week in in manchester um and and i mean party conferences at, at this particular point in time are quite interesting because you know we all know an election's coming uh, we all know that the strategy of each each uh, political party is to is to double down on their core support and uh, and and what they think their kind of core voters want to hear. Uh, and party conferences are are kind of part of that of that uh, of that sort of territory. So you know, in many ways, they are bubbles within bubbles within bubbles. But they, they tend to be the bringing together of the kind of true believers in whatever project happens to be in the ascendance at the time. And you know, they they will kind of debate and kind of talk about the issues often too extreme, <laughs> even for the kind of politicians that they're talking to. Uh, and then some t- eventually that'll get turned into a manifesto and a, a, and a campaign. So what we're really seeing is a bit of an insight into what those manifestos and campaigns uh, are going to look like um the the and you know that's why labor have spent time talking about abolishing Ofsted and private schools and all that sort of stuff incidentally they haven't spent a lot of time talking about higher education there's been a, a little bubble somewhere in the fringe where um you know gordon marsden and others have spent a lot of time talking about higher education and the technical detail of policy towards it including kind of the forthcoming lifelong learning commission which i've been uh, uh working with um but you know that hasn't really sort of touched the sides much of the of the uh, uh of the rest of the conference or the public's kind of consumption of it and um you know but but back to back to westminster as all um mps have been summoned there uh and that and that day yesterday of of uh, of boris and other ministers coming back to the dispatch box in in what has to be the worst tempered 
And that's saying something, the worst tempered set of exchanges I've ever seen in the House. And, and what it shows, of course, is Boris's strategy, which is, um, you know, to double down and, and the fact that kind of slagging off MPs, judges, the Speaker, the establishment, amusingly, um, all plays to his core electoral strategy. People versus Parliament. He's on the side of the people. They happen to be the people that voted Leave. And kind of, you, you know, and that's, and, and every time something goes wrong, he can kind of, he can fall back to that card. And of course, that's, you know, that's also uh, very much the approach of his uh, his uber spad, uh, uh, Dominic Cummings, the, um, you know, the psychopath in the Gilet hiding somewhere in number 10 and uh, uh, and sending out these various kind of campaign messages via his uh, via his boss and uh, other Conservative ministers. So it's, I, I, you know, I mean, as a, as a, as, a, as a kind of a, as an academic now, I, I, I can detach myself a little bit from it. But 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 it's it's painful to watch, and I think kind of it feels to me that the the the, the division that is that is being kind of exacerbated, the language that is worsening, all of that is is beyond. Um, it's going to take us into an election. It's going to take us beyond an election. It's probably going to take us to elections and possibly even more referenda beyond that for a very long time. And I I don't see an early end to the kind of politics where. Uh, we're experiencing, and I find that uh, um, both worrying and depressing in equal measure. Um, I, I, I think the thing is, is that I'm I'm finding it hard to stay tuned in, and I think actually this is part of the psychological tactics behind this kind of politics, because it's a little bit like you know rubbernecking a car crash on the motorway. You're kind of drawn to it for the kind of worst reasons, and there is only so long that you can tolerate participating in that kind of. Um, I was going to say it's like it's like this kind of grotesque entertainment, and if it was just entertainment, that would be kind of one thing. But of course, we all know that this is people's lives, this is people's livelihoods, um, and at you know a point not too far into the distant future, this shit is going to get real. Uh, and I think probably within higher education, we're we're relatively. It may not feel like that, but relatively, we are. Um, you know, slightly more protected than perhaps other parts of either the public or indeed, you know, people working in the private sector. Um, but I think this sense of uh, chaos is contrived. I don't think it's accidental. Uh, and I don't think it does anybody's, um, you know, sort of democratic uh, interests any good at all. Um, although I do note that uh, somebody told me, I think some some statistic had come out during the week, uh, which was around the, the rise of politics as a subject choice uh, at A-levels. So interest is being peaked somewhere. Mm. Uh, indeed, and there was another story in the Times, Debbie, wasn't there, about the seven cafes are just completely off the table now, I believe. Mm. Well, yeah, that, that, that's, that's what the report is. And I think, I mean, obviously everyone's question is is about how does how does this impact on higher education and it's not you know there's not a sort of straight line to oh well obviously because um you know parliament has exploded uh there will be now <laughs> the consequences will be a b and c and, and you know the sort of policy as we know it i think is uh is, is, is basically suspended but there was that story on sunday which um it, it sort of read as read as if uh the journalists involved had been kind of brief briefed carefully that uh, the uh, auger proposal to uh, reduce fees to seven and a half thousand pounds and this undergraduate full-time fees in England specifically um, uh, had been shelved uh, so that's sort of basically a, I think a signal uh, probably to the HE sector um, as much as anybody that um, 
everybody can kind of stop their kind of panic scenario planning for, for a fee cut, uh, for the moment at least, um, and that we won't see a, a, a fee cut uh, pr- proposal in um, and any kind of manifesto or, or, or retail offer. That's not to say that there couldn't be other stuff um, coming through in a Tory retail offer, and we'll have to kind of watch um, to see to see what those might be. But um, so there's some kind of comfort there. But we should also remember it is it is just a time story, and um, you know, with with the psychopath and the gilet at the helm, anything could happen. Um, and I, th- I think you know that that is really challenging for the sector because one of the things that universities thrive on is, is stability um, and uh, a degree of predictability about well you know not least income streams um, and you know we sort of, we're, sort of, we're sort of at our best when, when there's space to deliberate and plan and um, that's not the that's not the environment we're in and the pathways to influence and shape that environment are very um, limited uh, so you know and, and and that creates a challenge. Um, and, and I think the choices are, you know, sort of, sort of you, you, you can you can laugh or you can cry, but um, you know, pick pick a pick a pick your favourite. <laughs> so there we are, listeners. We're, we're laughing or crying. Yeah, can I can picking. I say something about the Times story? Please do. Yeah, uh, I think I, I mean it's it's an interesting story and it's clearly a signal. I mean, I mean the um, I, I think I think those that think that Auger in its entirety is is dead are are being a little bit premature. I mean, the, the rather odd thing about the time story was that kind of, you, you know, the reason they say it's not going to happen is because um, the government doesn't have a majority in parliament and couldn't get anything through. Well, funnily enough, that's going to, that applies to absolutely everything <laughs> on their agenda. So, um, you know, why they're using that excuse to uh, uh, to float this story is is interesting in itself. Um, I think I think Debbie's right that it's it's... It's probably a, re- a relief for, for vice chancellors and others in the sector that um, you know higher education isn't isn't the headline uh, during the party conferences, and it isn't going to be the headline, for example, in a Labour manifesto that uh, talks about uh, Ofsted and private schools. It's going to come quite a long way down that page, um, and and for you know for many in the sector, they'd, they'd be much happier. Uh, uh, making policy in kind of technocratic, small, influenceable circles. Um, but going back to the the manifesto point and, and the Dominic Cummings issue, you, you know the politics of higher education will now be uh, will now be written by those people fleetingly uh, with little care for detail because they'll be interested in what's the best retail offer when the manifesto is written and when the election comes and that and that in a sense is is uh, is um, the nightmare scenario for many people in higher education that's when that's when the unthought through stuff that's when the lack of consultation happens that's when kind of you, you know odd headlines whether it's a six grand fee or a seven and a half grand fee or or uh, you know reducing the profile of uh, uh, private school students in uh, uh, accepted to higher education kind of gets through and um you know and universities will then have to pick up the pieces so 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 i think the kind of uh, the nightmare scenario is the one that we're entering which is that uh, um you know it's unpredictable because it's it's the politicians that will decide in the context not of detailed policy no one will start with what does it take to fund a university what does it take to kind of you know run a higher education system but they'll start with what's the best line about higher education that's going to get us votes in our in our core group of potential voters and I think kind of you know going back to Walker on that basis uh, things around further education things around kind of uh, um, the the higher education offer in left behind places um, you know these are the things that I think are very likely to live on um, from kind of uh, you know from the detail of the Orga report as for the headline and the fee we'll see Every week, we're delving deep into the sector's past to uncover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here is Hidden History of HE. 
So the bidding competition to have new universities is an excellent and really exciting example of how British university planning worked. They set up a subcommittee. Great and the good come on the subcommittee. They happily uh, sit together and work out what they should do. Now, people have been writing in saying, hello, can I have a university for a while now? So they've got a file already of towns and cities that said, can we have a university, please? So they're ready to go. So they've got a, a group of people they can contact and say, are you still interested in having a university? And they work out what the criteria are for having a good university. It needs plenty of land in order to expand. It needs to have good access to schools so that staff uh, will come and let their kids um, go to those schools. Um, it needs to have a certain amount of industry nearby and communication to other universities, but there's no kind of fixed uh, idea of what they should do. They also don't have a fixed idea of where they should be, so they just let the applications come in and and sort them out. So um, different local authorities spring up with ideas and write in, sending in their different um, uh, bits, some from rather unlikely places. So for quite a long time, the one making the running in the northwest was Blackpool. We're going to have the University of Blackpool. Um, that attracted quite a lot of uh, comment because Blackpool was a slightly challenging place. Um, and so people... Uh, you know, had different views on this uh, and the best bit of that is someone who cheerfully wrote into the UGC saying um, I think um, he says I beg to strongly oppose the current suggestion that a university for the northwest of England should be established at or on the outskirts of Blackpool a university is supposed to be a place where young people absorb culture and learning not spivery and paganism and he goes on to say that he can't imagine a worse place to put a university apart from Soho uh, now it turns out that uh, Lancashire um, starts to move more in the direction of uh, uh, Lancaster itself. Um, they acquire some land at Bellrig and Lancaster gets a nod over Blackpool. But we go through these independent writing in exercises. So there's a, um, a businessman who's driving past Stamford in Lincolnshire uh, uh, and he hears that um, the, the People at Stanford might be quite interested in having a university. They're one of the places that had a, a university suppressed in the Middle Ages. And he gets really involved in this. Uh, and he effectively becomes the leading light of this constant bid to have a university for Stanford. And they get quite a long way down the, the thinking. One of the key reasons is that Stanford's uh, got a new bypass. So it's got plenty of land. Uh, it's been redeveloped. And you can think about having a university. And there's a whole published report on why it would be a good thing for the University of Stanford to get going. Uh, and these keep going through. So there's a, a bid for uh, a university. University at Glastonbury. Uh, this nice chap writes in and says it'd be great to build a new university city of Avalon next to Glastonbury um, and create a new university city. Uh, now he doesn't get anyone else supporting him, but there on the UGC file is his nice letter and the very polite letter back from the uh, the civil servants of the UGC saying, "Well, that's that's very interesting. Do do follow up with some more details." So you go through these kind of stages, and and there is a long list of places that at some point are considered to have a new university. Some of whom. That's fine. They get they go and get their university. So we have uh, bids from Bournemouth and Carlisle and Chatham and Chester and uh, there's one from Coventry, which is obviously quite successful. But Plymouth and Salisbury and Stamford and Stevenage and Thanet. Thanet is one of the ones that makes one of the early running again, uh, but in the end is is passed over in terms of of Canterbury. So you get this kind of wonderful pickup of these things, and the files are just great as you go through them, uh, and you get this different information sent in by these people trying to say well. Can we have a university place? So the best correspondence I found on the file is from the Swindon people. So the Swindon people start by this very apologetic letter from the town clerk saying, um, people in Swindon have asked me to write. I'm not sure personally about doing this, um, but, but what's the process? 
Um, and then he kind of gets more into it, and the, Swindon say, well, one of the things we want to do is, is deal with the fact that there's a perception that we're quite a dreary town, and a university might be quite good for us. So they, they kind of talk about how this might go through. And his correspondence backwards and forwards uh, goes on and on over about four years, because of course, they don't quite get going in time. Uh, and slowly, you know, it's clear that other people are getting their universities um, but but they're not. So by the end, when it's quite clear that there aren't going to be any more universities, this is this is sad little letter in from the town clerk uh, to the UGC. Um, Please do not groan too deeply when you receive this letter. I'm not going to harass you. I know that nothing can be done until the government announcement has been made about new universities. Uh, and he goes on to say, well, we've, we, perhaps we could use a new bit of land. It might be a better bet for, for our new Swindon University. Uh, and he ends it in a sad little sign-off. Now, please don't toss this into the waste paper basket. Now, the good news is that it was all dutifully considered by the UGC. It's still lovingly kept on the file. Uh, Swindon did not get to have its university. Uh, the cut-off had come and the government had changed its mind on how many universities it wanted. Because at that point, um, the uh, new Labour government decides, that's it, no more universities, uh, we're going to stop uh, approving them, we've got enough students uh, into the planning period, uh, and we'll have no more. Next up, we're going to talk about initiations, but first we want to let you know that Wonkfest is coming. Yes, now at a brand new venue, the most exciting event in the UK HE calendar is back for its third year. We are witnessing the most chaotic political moment in a generation, as we've just been talking about. And now more than ever, we must understand how it fits into the wider world, how to make the case for our institutions, how to meet the needs of, needs of our many different communities and stakeholders, and how we prepare to tackle local, national and global challenges. At Wonkfest, we bring the sector together to tackle some of these issues and to share the great challenge of navigating what lies ahead. We have got two non-stop days of ideas, new thinking, analysis and debate. You can choose what to focus on and build an experience that will be the most valuable for you and your professional role and your organisation. The sessions range from headline plenaries um, to masterclasses and from interactive workshops to fireside chats. You will never be too far away from a new idea or useful insight. Old colleagues and many new ones yet to be made from different and unexpected parts of university life. With an abundance of interesting things to do and see, we honestly think it will be the most valuable two days out of the office that you will have all year. And remember, if you are a Wonky Plus subscriber, your tickets are discounted. The past two years we've sold out, so head to www.wonkfest.co.uk to book your tickets and to find out more. We cannot wait to see you all there. Next up, this week, Universities UK released new guidance for universities in regard to initiation ceremonies and the danger of excessive alcohol consumption. So, Selena, what did you make of this one? Yes, this is a report that's been authored by Universities UK and Newcastle University, and it arose following the tragic death of Newcastle University student Ed Farmer in 2016 uh, due to excessive alcohol consumption at a student society initiation event. Uh, now, the timing of the release of this report, I think, will, in you know, sort of fresh as sweet for a lot of universities at the moment, it will grab uh, administrators' uh, attention, and I think that's a very good thing. Um, the report is a very solid report. It looks at the background of both how and why these events can give rise to dangerous and risky behaviour amongst students. But what it's not doing, it's it's not saying that these initiation rituals are on the rise, uh, and neither is it saying that students are more likely to be drinking alcohol excessively these days than in past years. Uh, in fact, I think we know that the opposite is the case. Um, but what I think it does do is it suggests that... Um, 
the you know the, the sector as a whole is recognizing its increased responsibility for safeguarding its student communities uh, in in all sorts of different ways and um, I listened to the the podcast on wonky wonky last week in terms of the mental health discussion and I think a lot of similar issues were were coming out there um, uh, and I think it is also careful to sort of say, it, you know, we are not suggesting that institutions should exert greater control over student behaviour. Um, but it is saying that, you know, communities need to be safeguarded at university, institutions and student unions need to work in partnership to do that. And it has a fairly solid list of 10 practical recommendations, which I would find it very hard to imagine that any university or student union would object to in any way. And it's also got, I think, some really useful case studies of emerging good practice. Uh, so, you know, there's a case study there from Newcastle University about what it has done um, over the last couple of years, uh, you know, very much focusing on training, information, protocols, reporting. But there's also a write-up of the NUS Alcohol Impact Project, which is more of an institutional strategic framework uh, to see, you know, less alcohol-driven uh, events, uh, which I think, you know, we, we, people almost arrive at university expecting, which personally, I've always found a little odd when you think about, you know, the trajectory of your average student coming in, why the way to start what is, you know, one of the most exciting times of their life after a hard year of studying, you know, their A-level for their BTEC qualifications, the way to kind of celebrate that is to um, just sort of drown themselves in alcohol for a couple of weeks. It's just a very strange way to start in a new community and also for kind of standards and expectations of those community behaviours. Um, so I think it's really, really good to have not just some principles and some guidance which challenge this, but actually some very, very practical state case studies, which I think universities can learn from. Mm. I actually, and of course, there is a, a trend of, 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 of young people drinking less, of course. And I think it was you yourself, Selena, who coined the phrase the last time you were on the podcast, which was, you can't be drunk and work, which has always <laughs> stayed with me. You can't be both drunk and work. Um, and I think that's I like true. to leave a little learning wherever I might linger, Rachel. No, indeed, indeed. And when like I get fairy my, dust. Yeah, when I get the, my dream of the wonky sh- the wonky merch shop online, that's going to be a t-shirt. You can't be drunk and work. Um, Andy, what did you make of this one? Well, I thought, uh, as Selena said, it, it did remind me a lot of the um, the mental health story last week and kind of uh, Norman Lamb's research um, as the Lib Dem Party conference was going on. Um, you, you know, and at that time, I thought, you know, it, it's absolutely clear that kind of, you know, universities have a responsibility, it, you know, and I certainly don't want to defend universities who don't do enough in that environment or in this one. And I don't want to pass the buck from universities to other agencies. But it was clear with mental health, as it is with this issue, that this isn't something that universities can solve on their own um and and for me you know the very very helpful guidance that that the uk have drafted the key one is uh, uh the key item the key recommendation is is really boring but it's it's the one that will make the most difference and it's work with a local council licensees and partners 
Now, you know, what does that mean? What does that actually mean? It means that the university, the students' union have got to kind of, you know, talk to the local council about about how licensing happens. They've got to kind of, you know, get down and dirty and go to the kind of clubs and the pubs that uh, that benefit and, and the, the retailers that kind of, uh, um, you know, that have a, a serious stake in this commercially and do some, do some serious heavy lifting about how they cope with, as Selena described, you know, the kind of, um, you know, the mass uh, induction and arrival of kind of uh, thousands of young people in, in, um, uh, uh, towns and across campuses, uh, throughout the country. And, um, you, you know, and that's, that's where you'll solve it. Uh, and, and the good practice stuff, fantastic. Lots of stuff about kind of, you, you know, what, what pr- procedures and policies universities have. But where we will solve this, just like with the mental health and kind of working with the NHS and mental health services, is working with the local council licensees and partners. And, and doing, you know, some serious kind of thinking about what that means. And actually kind of doing that work is, is what will change this. And, uh, and that's what I'd like to see more of. I suspect, I suspect kind of deep down that's the bit that universities probably need most help with. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe that's another good practice guide entirely. Well, I, I just think there's one of the things that struck me when I sort of um, had read the report and reflected on, a, on it a little was how often groupthink was mentioned throughout the report. And it, it was mentioned in the context of being key in enabling coercive behaviours, uh, which is, of course, what sort of sits behind uh, some students' participation in these initiation uh, rituals that are attached to sort of student societies and so on. Um, but it, 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 you know, one of the things that I always sort of think when these types of reports come out, which are about behaviours, is well, why are students different to their peers? You know, young people generally in other parts of society. What, what's the, what's the student angle on this? Um, and you know, lots of lots of young people will go out and uh, drink to excess. Lots of old people go out and drink to excess. But one of the things that I think is distinct about student life is that it's a sort of quite short, intense period of um, excessive group formation. Um, So, you know, which is not the same when you're 20 and, you know, perhaps you're living at home and you go to work, you you might make new friendship groups. But going to university is a succession of trying to be part of a series of different groups. And I think therein lies some of the psychological pressure, because what we need to address in relation to student safeguarding is that natural need and sense of belonging. Um, I think that's something that sits beneath a lot of issues, not not just uh, to do with initiations, to do with mental health and well-being, but we also know it's a critical factor in terms of things like um, research, uh, retention and achievement. Uh, so I think we also, as well as kind of following the policies and procedures and the partnerships that Andy suggests, I think that we need to think more proactively about how we support students um, to understand what's happening in terms of the dynamics around group formation because I think that is something that really is quite different about student life. Yeah I think the I think the um I think the point here as well is is about kind of not 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 clamping I mean not 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 solely clamping down on unproductive behavior but sort of acknowledging the drivers for those behaviors. Selena's what you think you're saying is is that you know people need rites of passage they need um you know in, intensive moments of community formation in order in order to enter you know in order to transition from one from one sort of life into another. Um, and higher education is a really important moment for people to to sort of transition out perhaps you know or 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 build build and extend those networks and um so I, and, and I was sort of thinking well what if we didn't have these kind of deeply toxic 
toxic, problematic rites of passage ceremonies, you know, what, what would we have? Um, and I wonder whether, you know, sort of, um, and of course, you would have to design it in a very kind of accessible way and stuff like that. But you might have, you know, communal sporting events or something that kind of, um, you know, sort of sort of pushes people a little bit. You might have kind of, I don't know, mass treasure hunts. And, you know, so there's lots of things that you could do that um, help people to form those bonds and, and, and put just the right amount of pressure on to kind of bond people together um, and, and, sort of, and sort of bring and bring them together as a kind of group and as a community, but that don't involve putting people at risk. And I think that's probably, that could be quite a productive conversation to have, you know, a lot with, with students and um, and with the kind of organisations that are sort of driving these sorts of behaviours. Now it's time for Yes, But Does It Correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's associate editor, David Kennehan. Welcome to Yes, But Does It Correlate? Not justiciable, but statistical. Somebody on Twitter asked me if providers with a bigger bank balance were more likely to award first class or upper second class degrees. So I've plotted institutional balance as of July 2018 against the percentage of 2016-17 graduates awarded a first class or upper second degree from providers in England. Yes, but does it correlate? No, I don't think it correlates. Um... I, I, I think just generally in life, you know, those who've got more give less. Uh, I think that I think it, it doesn't correlate or it correlates negatively. So I think those with small bank balances are giving more firsts and two ones. There's a very weak correlation. R squared is 0.17. But this is a great example of where graphs can be interesting even without a correlation. Russell Group universities are more likely to award first-class or upper-second degrees than more modern providers and have more money than just about anybody else. The reason we don't talk much about grade inflation in the Russell Group is that OFS have determined that most of these are explicable. But it's definitely worth a look. Data is from HESA and the OFS, so is England only. And where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. And finally, the Royal College of Midwives has released the results of its student survey, finding that almost 95% of student midwives receive a bursary that they say is not enough to live on and that almost half consider leaving their course due to financial pressure. Debbie, can you lead us off on this one, please? Yeah, so the uh, Royal College of Midwives had their uh, annual conference this week and um, as part of the kind of uh, sort of uh, PR around it. They, they conducted the survey of um, student midwives, um, and they found the kind of quite quite disturbing um, findings that student midwives are uh, financially struggling. And I think it's, I mean, you know, you can absolutely quibble with the data. You know, they surveyed their members. Um, you know, by implication, it, it was an it was an opt in survey, so we're not talking. You know, but but it's. I think if we uh, if we if we put aside the kind of potential quibbles around the data which are sort of easy and focusing on the kind of message which I think is important it's just we have to remember and, and particularly for kind of the, the you know the health, the health professions generally we're, we're not talking about students who are kind of the who are traditional and, and, and access to the profession this is a very kind of important route for access to the professions so often um, student midwives are mature often they have caring responsibilities often they're returning to education from perhaps you know not a kind of long history of uh, you know sort of academic study um, and of course, we have an ongoing challenge around uh, recruiting and retaining uh, health professionals uh, for the NHS. So uh, it's it's important to note and it's important to acknowledge um, and make sure that, that that point about you know these these sorts of courses are not like other courses. They're not like you know the kind of classic eighteen to twenty one year old um, you know can take on debt, has plenty of time to pay it off. They the, 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 these are sort of more vulnerable group of students, and it's really important that they not be forgotten in the policy narrative. Yeah, no, absolutely, Andy. 
Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's not entirely surprising, is it, given uh, um, the the sort of crisis around healthcare professionals recruitment and kind of you know the withdrawal of of, uh, of bursaries in other areas. Um, but it's not surprising that the bursaries that, that remain aren't aren't really paying enough. Um, I, I mean, I think they're kind of you know midwives are in a in a particular crisis again, not uncommon. You know, we aren't training enough of them. More midwives are leaving the profession than universities are uh, pumping into it. Um, I think it's broken, and I'm sure it's not limited to midwives it just so happens that RCM are the people that have done the research and released the results of that survey but it also makes me think about our earlier discussion um, both about equality and disadvantage and um, you know Andy's item around politics and the potential end of the reduced fee that Olga proposed Um, you know this is the point at which we can talk about the politicking. We can see the games that are going on. Um, Andy referred to the retail offer that politicians might make for us in a future general election. And uh, I think that we just need to remember that the sharp end of playing with the, uh, the window dressing around policy is that these kind of problems don't get solved. They become more entrenched. Inequalities become more entrenched. The service problems that arise when you don't have enough midwives become more entrenched. And ultimately, there has to be a point when the primacy of policy that is there, that is evidence and will make a difference, will have impact, has got to re-emerge. So that is about it for this week. To find out more about anything we've discussed today, you'll find links on our episode page at wonky.com where you can also leave your thoughts and comments. Don't forget you can subscribe automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show on your favourite podcast directory or you can find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you think you've got what it takes to be a guest on the show, please do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we will be in touch. So thanks again to our wonderful guests, Selena, Andy and Debbie, to everyone at Team Wonky for making the show happen. And of course, to you for listening to the very end. And until next week, stay wonky. Stay wonky.